Ugly, Chapter 13, Games Not Played One afternoon, I returned from school extremely excited. Mom, Mom, I've got something to show you, I yelled. Can I, Mommy, can I? How about you tell me what it is you want? I rummaged in my school bag, pushing aside books and pencils and half-squished bananas I hadn't gotten around to eating, and pulled out a sheet of paper. It was a permission slip for parents to sign, allowing their boys to play school sports. Can I? Can I? Can I play? Stop, Mom said. I'm trying to read this properly. She read it once, then turned it over, but there was nothing on the back. She read it again, taking it slow, then a third time. Well, I'd like to have a think about it and talk to Dad, she said. Is that okay? Everyone else in the family was involved in sports in one way or another. My even mom, who didn't really play anything much, had started managing the tennis team Catherine played on. The sport I wanted to play was called Rugby League. Rugby League is a lot like American football, but with no helmets and no pads and fewer cheerleaders. Two teams of 13 players line up against each other on a grassy rectangular field. Each team tries to carry the ball downfield and score a try like a touchdown. Teams had six tackles or downs to score before the opposing team took possession of the ball and tried to score. It was a simple game, and where I lived, it was the most popular sport to play and to watch. Even for young kids, though, it was a tough contact sport. You ran at a bunch of kids standing in front of you, trying to block your way, and either somehow managed to break through, or a bunch of them would fall on you when you didn't. It was a mess of arms and legs going all over the place, one way or another, you'd, become, you'd come into violent contact with some other kid. Mom and Dad were under instructions from my doctor to avoid knocks to my head. Surgeons didn't want a forearm or a foot undoing all their good work. Neither did my parents. Just as bad was the chance another player could cop a whack from one of my artificial legs. Both were much harder than a real leg and could cause some serious harm. There was no way Mom and Dad could let me play. Mom went to school to see Mr. French, who was in charge of organizing the teams for our school. She explained to him the reasons I couldn't play and asked if there was some way I could be involved on the sidelines. They came up with a plan for me to be the ball boy on the side of the field, kicking the ball back in when it came out of bounds, and helping players set up the ball for place kicks. Do you mind if you only play on the sidelines, Robert? Mom asked when she arrived home. I don't mind what I do or where I am, as long as I'm playing and as long as I'm there. She and Dad both made a show of signing the permission slip, but I'm not really sure it ever made its way to school. We won that first game. I even got to go on the field a few times. It felt good, but deep down I knew I wasn't part of the team. A year later, I came home from school one day and called to Mom from my bedroom while I was getting changed, asking her if I could play Saturday morning rugby league. No reply. I guess she hadn't heard me. Later, I went to my school bag and retrieved the slip of paper with all the information on it. I put it on the table in front of her. Give me a straight answer, yes or no, I said. Would you be very disappointed if I said no? Mom asked. I started to cry. Once again, Mom explained that it was a tough contact sport. I was likely to be hurt if an elbow or foot hit me in the face, and other players were likely to be hurt if a clump of metal from one of my legs hit their head. I just kept crying. We watched rugby league every Sunday night on television. Sometimes I even got to go with Dad and watch games at the stadium. The players were some of my biggest heroes. Maybe you could play tennis, Mom suggested. I don't want to play tennis, 
I shouted at her. Mom almost lost her temper then, but she took a long breath and closed her eyes for a moment before responding. I'll talk to Dad about it when he gets home from work. I stormed off, sulking. Next morning, I grabbed a sheet of paper and excitedly plonked it in front of Dad at the breakfast table. Can I play, Dad? No, Robert, you can't play, he said. I started crying again. Why not? It's too dangerous, Mom said. If you play a sport like that, you'll just end up hurting yourself or someone else. I crossed my arms, like I'd seen people do on television when they were cranky but determined. Dad tried to cheer me up. These kids kick each other in the shins and they put their fingers up each other's nose when no one is looking, he said. I didn't laugh. Are you sure you don't want to play tennis? Mom asked. Yes. Well, go have your bath and get ready for school then, she said. I'm not going to school, I said. Mom shrugged. Suit yourself. Dad glowered at me and pointed toward the bathroom, and I went. When I came home from school, Mom again talked to me about tennis. I still wasn't very keen, but after a while, Mom sent me into her bedroom to retrieve a package, all wrapped up, that she'd left on the bed. It's a tennis racket. It was just like the one Catherine had. I was excited to have my own tennis racket at first, but I didn't really pursue the sport or make the most of the training Mom and Dad offered. I wanted to be part of a team, win, lose, or draw, but mostly win. We'd go around in circles every few months. I'd argue that I should be allowed to play some sport, and my parents would say no. Summer was cricket season, but that would involve having a hard, heavy ball aimed at my body at significant speed. It was another no. I loved swimming too, but it wasn't the kind of team sport I wanted to play, and I wasn't fast enough to be competitive. Running was the same as swimming, with the added benefit that I fell over all the time. One by one, all the sports were eliminated. In elementary school, the closest I got to any organized com competition was Friday afternoon sports. Most of the other kids would go off to play competitions against nearby schools, but there'd be a bunch of us left behind. The injured, the uncommitted, the uncoordinated, the ones who couldn't catch, the crippled. I would have happily spent my time in the library. Alas, this gaggle of uncoordinated misfits was rounded up each week and made to play some sort of sport against each other. We'd get into our sports gear and head down to one of the ovals not being used for a real sport. We'd be told what sport we were going to play for the afternoon. Often it was softball, but sometimes it was made-up sport designed to at least keep us active for the last hour and a bit of the school week. The teacher would choose two captains. The captains would then look the rest of us over using their obvious years of sporting experience, training, coaching, and performing at the highest level of athletic competition and they'd slowly put us poor suckers out of our misery. It would start like this. Whichever captain had first pick would select the super competitive skinny kid who didn't play an organized sport because his parents were worried he'd break something. It was rare but not unknown to have some kids with actual athletic talent with us there on those Friday afternoons. Then the captains would make their way through the kids who had some skills but weren't as well-rounded. The kid who couldn't catch but couldn't bat, the kid who could bat but couldn't run, the last few times I waited with excitement for my name to be called. I couldn't run fast, but the teacher always allowed someone else to run for me if we were playing something like softball. I figured my chances of getting picked were as good as those of anyone else. My hopes were soon dashed, though. It became very obvious very quickly that even on a team of nobodies with no sporting talent and often even less enthusiasm, no one was keen to pick me. 
The captains would keep going until there were only three or four students left. This is where things would get really interesting. The two captains would look over and see that it was a choice between the crippled kid, the kid who could not catch a ball even if it was dropped gently into his cupped hands from inches above, the kid who had a cast taken off their broken angle only last week, and the kid who just couldn't get the rules of any game, no matter how often you tried to explain them. The captains would be down to the second to last choice. They'd look us over, look at each other, sometimes look at the teacher, and invariably they'd call out, Robert. I'd hear my name and I'd limp over, limp on over to my teammates, occasionally issuing a high five and talking about how we were going to crush our opponents. But in my heart, I'd know there was no honor in being chosen second to last. Every now and then I'd get my hopes up, thinking maybe I'd be recognized for my brilliant tactical or motivational skills and would be chosen first for a change. Other times I would have been happier to be picked last. It would have been honest at least, but no, second to last had become the new last. When you're a young boy who loves sports, there's hardly anything worse than being picked second to last for a sporting team. Knowing the captain probably would have picked you last, but didn't because he either felt sorry for you or was worried he'd get a disapproving look from the teacher. It seemed like there was no sport for me to play. People sometimes assumed I'd been playing a sport when I was injured, which seemed unfair, even cruel, when I wanted to play so badly and wasn't able to. When I was 12, I once went into an elevator by myself. Two middle-aged ladies got in after me. One of them looked me up and down, then stared at my face long enough to make me look away. Terrible how they let kids so young play rough sports these days, she said to her friend. Look at the damage it does. The other woman turned and stared at me too. Yes, yes it is, she said. Some of the best talks I have ever had started with someone asking, this might seem rude, but can I ask about your face, nose, scars, bumps? Wherever those conversations ended up, they started as honest exchanges. Acknowledging someone's differences can be about saying you're not scared to talk to someone about the things that make them who they are. Those few moments in the elevator were not one of those times, and I stayed silent until we reached the ground floor. I should have cringed or felt embarrassed or angry at those two women, but at the time I just wanted to laugh. Lady, if you only knew how much I wished I was this ugly because I was allowed to play sports.